This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What is crackalackin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Pavalli coming at you without my fantabulous yet traitorous co-host Adam Frommel, who as of this moment officially no longer works with me at Bleacher Report. As you can tell, I harbor no ill feelings whatsoever towards him leaving. Today, though, we're going to be talking some NBA draft with Hardwood Knox's favorite draft guru, Adam Spinella. He is the Dickinson College assistant men's basketball coach. He also contributes to Celtics blog, and he does most of his work at the box and one follow them on twitter at the box and one that's spelled out o n e underscore the box and one underscore he also has a youtube channel with many followers where he's publishing draft content scouting reports all the friggin time youtube.com go search adam spinella s-p-i-n-e-l-l-a he will come right up subscribe watch those videos he's going to be taking us through some nba draft consequences now i guess the way to put it uh i know basically zero about the draft i mentioned that at the top i i have a good feel for two of the players uh, most one of which is only because of of him so he takes someone who is dumb ignorant to this draft class for the most part aside from knowing the names and the top prospects uh, through what to expect we go through the the top five guys we look at how the draft could unfold after that uh, we look at some of his sleepers after that we go into trying to figure out what's wrong with the Boston Celtics with obviously because that's our brand on this podcast providing a concrete conclusion as to what for them to do but as we recorded this they're currently in play in territory in the Eastern Conference even though they're working off a pretty impressive but also very topsy-turvy victory over the the New York Knicks this was a blast as always follow Adam on Twitter at spinella14 that's at s-p-i-n-e-l-l-a-1-4 before we get started though the usual housekeeping notes or please as you might hear them Download and subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume your podcast player podcasts. Uh, that would be spectacular. We appreciate it. And whether you use iTunes, please head over there. Search Hardwood Knox. Throw us that five-star rating. Write a review. Those help us out a ton. We love seeing those numbers go up too. So continue to build up the ego of Adam and myself. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow the Sports Math Network on Twitter as well at the underscore sports underscore math. And finally, follow us on YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox, subscribe, throw those likes in when those videos comes out, help us juice that algorithm to, to get more views aside from the subscribers that we do have. That is it, though. I now, without further delay, am ready to take you through the NBA draft and whatever the hell is ailing the Boston Celtics with Adam Spinella. Spins, welcome back to the Hardwood Knox podcast. I just before I yelled spins, I was talking like I was going to do my intro with you on here, but I always pre-record my intros when I have guests so that they don't have to listen to the spiel. So you got to listen to me in real time, bring up all the info I wanted, and I'm not going to use it with you because I'm going to pre-record it afterwards once you know what we're talking about. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks so much for having me back on the pod. It's it's always great to be here, and and I know today talking a little bit about the NBA draft. It's an exciting time because, you know, college season is done and it finally feels like there's a, a little bit of a bow on what's been a really strange college season and pre-draft process for these guys. So we can finally talk about them a little bit in terms of the sample size being complete. And I'm excited for that. Yes. And as a preface for listeners, this is like spins is doing, he does most of the heavy lifting all the time. He's doing all of it this time. I told him beforehand, the two prospects I know really anything about are Cade Cunningham because people only talk about, they talk about him nonstop. And then I read an in-depth piece he wrote on Jared Butler. So I feel comfortable in saying that Jared Butler is going to be one of the greatest players of all time. And that's just an opinion I, I feel informed enough to give. Um, one of the things I did want to hit on before we get to players is this pre-draft process now 
I assume it's going to get closer to normal than it was last season where I had talked with a couple people sort of involved with the process that it was just difficult with the logistics of not having those, the same number, the same breath, the same ability to have those in-person workouts. And I'm assuming one, that those will be closer to normal this year, but also two, how much do you sort of even read in to those, you know, like what type of impression can a prospect actually leave in, in those type of settings? It's a, it's a great question. I've always been one to believe that a, a pre-draft workout typically can only hurt you in your evaluation of a prospect. It might be able to confirm what you thought of somebody that you weren't able to see on the film. Uh, college coaches are concerned with one thing first and foremost, and that's winning games. So they have to be able to make every single puzzle piece on their roster fit together. Sometimes, and we've seen this, I'll use the Kentucky and John Calipari example, where he has so many lead guards and really good scorers that somebody has to play a little bit more of a niche role and doesn't get to showcase every single skill that they have, which is where Tyler Hero falls to 14 or Emmanuel quickly in the, the bottom end of the first round of the New York Knicks. Like those guys, when you get them in a workout setting, might be able to show a little bit more pop than they did on film and, and you know what you were able to see watching games of theirs. But other than those circumstances, to me, I think all it serves to do in the pre-draft workout is get somebody really overhyped about something that is a small data point on a really, really, you know, wide spectrum of things. It, it's just one other data point to add to the whole the whole picture. And you know, there are some prospects out there this year who had a little bit of an underwhelming season in comparison to where the expectations were for them coming out of high school or, or what they thought they would be uh, in college this past year. I think the pre-draft workout's important for those guys because you're looking at the flashes of potential and saying, is this real where we write about this guy a year ago and he just didn't perform well in his circumstance? Or you know, is he, is he really that far away from becoming who we thought he would be a year ago? So uh, it's a really convoluted way of saying it's a little bit overrated, the pre-draft workout process, but there are enough players out there that that will matter for uh, that it's going to be a good thing to have it back. Is there an element of that to the March Madness tournament itself where I would struggle to get, even knowing nothing about them, I, I would struggle to read good or bad in the performances from Cade Cunningham or Jalen Suggs based on how they perform in such a tiny sample. I know it's higher stakes, which matters, but isn't that body of work that precedes the March Madness tournament more important? And maybe it's more so for less defined prospects where they don't have a specific range that they can do more to make or break their case during that tiny sample that ultimately is March Madness? To me, March Madness is the ultimate, you know, late riser uh, type of paradise. You can only help your stock during that time if you're somebody that's outside the kind of top 35 or 40. A few years ago, that was Malachi Richardson at Syracuse. You know, people knew who he was and thought he was an okay prospect, but he just exploded and Syracuse went to the final four. And then all of a sudden, he was a first round pick. You know, a couple of years later, he's probably not a guy that you're looking at and saying, oh, smart pick taking him early. But, uh, it, you know, Johnny Juzang of UCLA is right now having a similar type of rise. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit too. I don't know if practical is the right word for this stuff, but I'm 100% with you that the the overall sample of work that you have through 25, 30, 35 games is much more indicative of who you are as a prospect than what you do for a two-weekend sample in March. Fun fact about Malachi Richardson, Adam, the other Adam who hosts the podcast with me, we have a text thread with one of our other friends that's called Malachi Richardson. I don't remember why. Something must have happened with him that we were talking about, but it's been that way for like two years at this point. So his legacy lives on after his performance with Syracuse. <laughs> let's so let's start with Cade Cunningham here. Uh, the I I think the most maybe it's a cliche at this point or the best way to put it, the most popular comparison is I've seen for him has been what if Ben Simmons could shoot, and that does two things for me. Immediately, it's going to pique your attention, and two, I'm like, all right, are we setting him up for failure? Um, and so what are, is he, and again, my ignorance showing through here, is he just the, the number one pick, no matter who has it, he's just done enough there. He's a, he's a cut above the, let's say the other three or four candidates that might be there. And just to, what are your overall impressions, insights into his game? 
So I'll set the table a little bit for you, Dan. With with this class right now, there are five names who probably would in any other year belong in contention for the top overall pick. A pretty clear top tier in this draft. And and most guys that you would look at any of the last two or three years and say, this guy should go number one. Cade Cunningham is a half step better right now than anybody else in that area. You know, you mentioned the the Ben Simmons uh, type of comparison. To me, Simmons is a little bit more of a live body athlete. He really pops in terms of his his dunking ability, how he plays in space, and and just his fluidity overall. Cade Cunningham's a little bit more grounded and skilled than that. I think the comparison for me would be like a a hybrid of Luka Doncic and Grant Hill. So someone who's going to uh, be better in one on one situations than Ben Simmons, right? A little bit better, yeah, because he's a he's a really polished scorer. The the knock on Cunningham coming into his college season was that he wasn't a great enough shooter. People were really wondering to see, you know, is he going to be able to to hit shots when teams go under screens or play off of him in isolation situations? And because Oklahoma State, the team that he played on this year, didn't have a lot of great talent or great shooters outside of him, how would he react to the floor just collapsing on him? And he winded up shooting 40% from three this year. So he, he, uh, he blew expectations out of the water in that regard. And again, the, the amount of polish that he has on his game, when you're not a live body athlete like a Ben Simmons, but you're able to be a fantastic passer, you're an absolutely unbelievable you know, isolation scorer and playmaker. To be able to do that as a not LeBron James like superstar athlete shows the amount of skill that he has for somebody his age. To me, if anybody who wouldn't have him at number one is simply overthinking it at this point because he carried a a pretty poor Oklahoma State roster to the NCAA tournament and really finished the season on a strong note. So he's that guy where you're drafting him where last year it was, yes, they felt like there was a consensus top three, but you weren't sure if any of them were franchise altering. And at least looks like LaMelo Ball is that guy right now. Anthony Edwards might be trending in that direction. But with Cade Cunningham, it's zooming in on him. He is that franchise, that fortunes turning type of talent. Very much so. And, you know, I, I think Luka Doncic was somebody that a lot of people looked at as the most skilled player in his draft in, in a lot of ways, but wasn't this wire to wire, you know, beginning of the season to the end of the season consensus top guy. He's ended up being that. And uh, th- that's where, that's where Cade separates himself. He didn't have this late surge to get there. He was the the clubhouse leader, you know, coming into the season and he only played better than expectations were, were set for him. So uh, I have no hesitation in saying he's a clear cut number one in my book. Is there a clear cut number two in your book? And I'm assuming when you're talking about the, I know the top four, I'm not even sure who you're referring to at the top five, but like I know Evan Mobley, Jalen Suggs and Jalen Green will be involved with the, in the number two consideration. I agree. And, and I don't have a clear cut winner out of those three. They're all very different types of players and prospects. Uh, Mobley, probably the most unique because he's a big, you know, he's seven feet tall, seven, four wingspan. But of the three, he's the least likely to impact the game in a dominating way offensively. That's just not who he is. And and typically when you're looking at top overall picks or top two or three guys, it's rare to see someone who isn't an offensive alpha try to get that that spot. Uh, You know, Mobley is, from my vantage point, the most polished defender that we've seen as a big man come through the pre-draft process since maybe Anthony Davis. Oh, wow. You know, this very different type of player. Again, Davis, super athletic. I think Mobley is a little bit more length and angles and understanding. But the modern NBA big has to do so many different things right now. You have to be a great rim protector, great pick and roll defender, uh, able to switch a little bit on the guards at times and offensively be able to either stretch the floor to three or be a solid playmaker in that middle third of the court that's a lot of times where offenses are run through these days and delay actions and and things like that. So Mobley checks every single one of those boxes where the amount of skill, the amount of polish that he has sets him apart from not just any other big in this class, but even a Suggs or a green, like Mobley is so much more of a finished product right now that it's, it's hard to pass that up. And I'm, I'm very much in the camp. I'm not even trying to single out. I remain very high on Deandre Ayton. Um, I think higher than son's Twitter at this point. 
I think I've actually been more impressed with what I've seen from James Wiseman because of how much I throw out watching a rookie season than I thought I was going to be. I'm just so reticent to use a top three pick on a big man who isn't Zion Williamson, who isn't, you know, you mentioned Anthony Davis at this point, given how the NBA has trended. So what you're saying though, is, is that Mobley checks enough of those boxes where I think even with James Wiseman, and this might've been a symptom of how everyone viewed the, the draft class last year, there was the question of, does he check enough of those boxes to be taken so high? But with Mobley, that's just not an issue being a big man, um, even against or relative to the context of today's NBA and how it's played and how building blocks skew. He's someone that's worth gambling on there. He is, and he could be. Like, if you're asking me where I'm at right now, and I reserve all judgment to change this between now and July, um, I have Mobley fourth. It's so weird to say, so I, by the way. We just had it in July. November, and now it's July. But anyway, please carry on. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have Suggs and Green slightly above him right now for a lot of those same reasons. It's not to deny the impact that a guy that Mobley can have on the basketball court, but more so that the tantalizing upside offensively of guys like Suggs and Green is something that Mobley's just not going to be able to replicate. You know, offensively, he's a really good third, maybe fourth piece. Uh, facilitates, can knock down some open shots. But, uh, it, you know, I think most teams that are in that top tier, top three or four picks are looking for somebody that's going to be an offensive game changer. Uh, that's where I give Suggs and Green kind of the benefit of the doubt right now. Is... Jalen Suggs, I'm immediately drawn toward just because I've seen more of him by virtue of I paid attention to the, you know, to the end of the tournament and I have not watched a ton of G League. What have you seen from from Jalen Suggs? Or what Suggs you... is a winner. Yeah, okay. He's he's I a guess our Gonzaga, you have to be at this point. <laughs> well, and, and he came there. He was a really, really high class football player. He was a great quarterback in, in high school and could have gone to any number of division one schools and been the a starting quarterback as a freshman there. But basketball was, was his, his path and his choice. You know, a lot of times that it factor, that thing you don't really know how to describe, but you know it when you see it, that's what Jalen Suggs has. Uh, that's where, you know, it's no surprise that he's the one that hits the half court shot. To, to win the game for, for Gonzaga over UCLA because the, the big moment just seems to find a guy like him. And, and that it factor, like I'm, I'm not trying to compare him to a, a Michael Jordan, a Kobe Bryant, but he's got that swag that where just the big moment finds him. And I don't really know how to evaluate that or put it in, in any different type of you know, traits or terms other than just that it factor. He has a little bit of ways to go with his shooting consistency. He's a terrific on-ball defender. He's got decent size at 6'4", incredibly underrated uh, pick-and-roll playmaker, and very, very good in the open floor. So he, he just makes positive plays happen when he's out there. I think there's a lot of room for him to be a three-level scorer as he continues to refine his, his jump shot and his pull-up range from three. But at this point, he's an elite finisher a really, really good on-ball defender and the probably the top competitor in this draft class. I, I feel like with shooting, it's too often dismissed where it's like, well, if he becomes a more consistent shooter, he'll be so good. And shooting is such a huge part of today's NBA that I feel like we can't just frame it as, you know, once Ben Simmons has, and this is a cliche in itself, now, once Ben Simmons has more range, he's going to be an MVP candidate. It just doesn't work like that. Did he sort of show enough? Because even looking at his numbers really quickly, 76% from the foul line or whatever, that's probably encouraging. Almost 34% from three, so that's not bad. 42% on two-point jump shots. When you're watching him, do you see someone who's going to end up being an above-average off-the-dribble shooter at the NBA level? I think he will be. Um, at this point, he's more streaky than pure. Like He'll have some games where he's 0 of 3, 0 of 4, 0 of 5 from three, and then a couple more where he's 4 of 6, 4 of 7. You know, he, you've got to bring it every night at the NBA level. And with Suggs, you know, there's nothing glaring in terms of his form, his technique, his his shot selection is great. There's no one issue that you would pinpoint and say, if he only fixed this, he'll be there. I think he's going to get to that point. And, you know, maybe this is a little bit of my background, having worked in high school before, but guys who are multi-sport athletes at that level, once they finally dedicate themselves to their craft, they tend to continue to grow in ways that the guys who've been just playing basketball for the last four or five, six years don't necessarily have that upside. I'm willing to bet on a guy like Suggs as a result of that. With Jalen Green moving on to him, 
is I feel like what's been labeled as his biggest weakness, again, across from what I've seen just on Twitter and reading, is that his propensity for taking difficult shots and how reliant he is on them. Could that also be construed as a strength, though, because he's hitting them in a G League where he's gone up against NBA first-round picks and maybe more athletic wings, where I'm not saying the talent is necessarily better by far and away than college, but to see him hit those shots in the G League against maybe certain better defenders, does that actually help him? It, it better, um, it, you know, I, I'm, I kind of agree with you. Like the talent is, is a little bit better that he faced in the G league bubble. It, it's glorified college all-star games every single night against grown ass men who've been working on their bodies for many more years that guys can't just physically or athletically overpower, you know, green is, and I say this with all due respect to Cade Cunningham, Jalen green is the highest ceiling prospect in this draft class because of that ISO scoring ability that, that, you know, incredible tough shot making that he's already demonstrated. He's a solid, competent on-ball defender and, and not a terrible help defender either. So there's a ton of upside to believe in there with Green. But, you know, whether you view that shot making as a strength or a potential minus, like Jalen Green has the ability to win you a game just based on how he scores it. He can keep you in games. He can, he can shoot you and, and kind of, completely take over he can also shoot you out of a game uh, <laughs> you know and 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 that's where i think the surroundings are going to be really important for him as opposed to a guy like cunningham or suggs who really elevate anyone that's around him mobley who's more of a complimentary piece on offense and just anchors everything on d like green is the one guy on this list who not just the players that he's with, but the environment, the level of coaching and how hard those guys will be on him with shot selection and refining his game is really important. You know, you, you are the one who brought up his one-on-one creation. If you ask me, the best trait that he has is his finishing ability at the rim. He is not just an, an athletic above the rim type of finisher, but he adjusts and contorts his bodies through traffic and through, you know, rim protectors and guys that are trying to challenge shots and still makes them at a really, really high clip. Like his a level of body control is insane. But if he views himself as more of a perimeter scorer and a guy who just relies on his jump shot every single time, to me, he's mitigating his, his best trait. So it's going to be more so about the environment and the realization that he has of being a, a well-rounded and a polished scorer on ball, off ball, at the rim from three, than it is just relying on this really tantalizing three-point ability and, and self-creation to say he has a chance to be a generational type of scorer, so let's take a risk on him. Like It, it really does depend on where he ends up. And I, so I guess that is then looking at, you know, he didn't get to the free throw line a ton and he was playing a bunch in, in the G League. That's There is that tendency then for his game to just bail out, stall out, whatever, but before he gets to the rim. Unfortunately, so right now, and again, we're talking about you know nineteen year olds. Uh, I don't think I knew anything about how to play basketball when I was nineteen. And unfortunately for me, my career ended when I was eighteen. So that should tell you something. But look, uh, I'm thirty two and still know nothing about basketball. So <laughs> there you go. He has again the highest ceiling in this draft class with his combination of, of athleticism and shot making, and and he can be a really good on ball defender. But it is a little bit of pick your poison where you know. Can he elevate your team? He can with his scoring ability, but he can also shoot you out of it. And, and depends on what the franchise that's picking second or third or fourth is really looking for. But uh, to me, those are the clear top four. And then Jonathan Kaminga would be number five that kind of has an outside shot of leaping one of those other three guys to get into the top four. So what are, can you give me this? Well, actually my last question on Jalen Green was, does he have another level as, a table setter or is this someone who is going to fall you know maybe you see him as time goes on make the Jalen Brown type playmaking leap or the Kawhi Leonard where if you have him run enough pick and rolls independent of other point guards the assist numbers will rack up but he's not necessarily and I'm not really ready to say this about Tatum uh and I didn't mention him so I shouldn't have even brought his name into this I think he still has that extra gear there but is he someone who could maybe follow a different trajectory or is he still going to be very much in the he's just primarily a scorer and he's going to do some things by virtue of having the ball in his hands, but he's not going to necessarily pass guys open or elevate guys with his passing. Yeah. I think that's more so what it is with him, at least from what I've seen right now, you know, the, the G league ignite schedule was 
not very robust. I mean, we're still talking about guys who played 15 games. Like that's what we're basing a lot of this on. I, I think of him a little bit more in the like, Carmelo Anthony Gilbert Arenas role, where just because they have the ball in their hands so much and he's that talented, he's going to get three or four assists a game. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's making exquisite reads or making life easier for his other guys. You know, point guard is is as much a mentality as it is a position. And that's where, as a table setter, as a creator, if you're always thinking shot first, it's it's just really hard to do that. And and you know, guys like Kawhi or Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum have made small improvements to I think play within the framework of their team and, and learn to create, but they're not always thinking, here's how I can put someone else in a position to succeed. What is the skinny on Jonathan Kaminga? Kaminga is completely raw upside with a six foot eight uh, height, six eleven wingspan. Like his ability to score one-on-one in the mid range reminds some people of Kawhi Leonard. He's uh, a, another really, really strong competitor. Uh, you know, have the, the fortune of knowing a few contacts that have, have been around him over the last few years in high school. And I'll say the, the same thing, really quick learner, really hard worker and wants to win. And those three traits, when you look at just the amount of upside that he has, athletically speaking, how good of a one-on-one scorer he can be, you know, they lead me to believe that he's going to find a way to be successful. He is the youngest guy in the lottery, uh, lottery prospect, and probably the youngest guy kind of overall getting first-round looks right now. Uh, There's so much bloom left on the rose for him. I think the Kawhi Leonard comparisons are – a little bit strong uh you know they're they're based upon the similar trajectory that Kawhi had in terms of turning himself into a really good shooter in the league Kaminga is not very consistent from three right now and the the worry with taking him above a Mobley a Greens or a Suggs is what does he really do off ball like I think he's an underrated passer and playmaker I think he's a functional shooter, but he's not a high volume, high percentage type of guy where, you know, if you take him in this top five and he never ends up being a high quality shot creator for himself because teams just go under screens or leave him uh, with a little bit of room on the perimeter, he essentially becomes Jeremy Grant, which isn't a terrible thing. No. Uh, But, you know, are you taking that over somebody that any other year would be in conversation for the, the top overall pick that, it ends up being a little bit of a stretch. So ton of upside there. Uh, really, really good kid. But the shooting is a swing skill for him, no doubt. So if he is there, if he were to be taken with one of the first four picks, which would mean that he usurped, we'll say obviously not Kate Cunningham, one of the other three, would that be based on a team fit decision? Or if you were right now, because we're not going to, we don't know the draft order, obviously, is there anyone that you could talk um, or can you talk yourself into uh Kaminga over any one of those other three prospects after Cade Cunningham right now? To me, the only way that Kaminga vaults into the top four is if Cunningham and Mobley go one, two, and the team that's on the clock at three or four does not have a need for a lead guard and thinks that the presence of a Suggs or a Jalen Green would take away from what they currently have on their roster at that position, uh, you know, trying to think of teams off the, the top of my head that might fall into that category. Um, you know, perhaps that might be Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. Cleveland a little bit and saying like, you know, if we put Jalen green and Anthony Edwards together, is that going to be a, a pretty toxic concoction of two score first guys uh, or, you know, Cleveland saying we really want to believe in in Garland and, and Sexton as the the backcourt of the future and, and keep investing in them. Kaminga might vault somebody else there, so that would be the only real case for me. Um, but again, we've all seen some strange stuff happen through the pre-draft process, where you know who knows what agent is going to watch a private workout for Darko Milicic and uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden vault him up the board. So. You know, stranger things have happened, but to me right now, he's he's a pretty firmly locked in at number five kind of guy. Is there, I think, and I, I say that it feels like this is unique. Maybe it's not unique, but when you look at teams that could find themselves just in the top four or five this year, 
where it's, you know, just Toronto keep like, are they tanking? It doesn't seem like they are. Are they naturally tanking? You have Minnesota, even if they keep their pick, uh, they want to be good. They invested, you know, they have D'Angelo Russell, they have Cat. You, you have two max salaries there, Anthony Edwards too. Uh, or if they don't have their pick, the Warriors could be right there in the top five. The Warriors could be in the top five with their own pick. Of these players, uh, at, let's say of the non-Cade Cunninghams, which one can help out most of a team that's going to have immediate postseason aspirations next season? It's either Suggs or Mobley. Uh, Mobley, you know, I'm going to go with Suggs. Um, and, and the only reason for that is, you know, you mentioned rookie seasons kind of being a wash a little bit a lot of times with, with, with big men in particular. Uh, I remember listening to an interview with DeAndre Ayton on the Woj pod where he talked about how much he really grew in the middle of year two because he learned what it takes to communicate and bring it on a nightly basis and how much is dependent on you as the anchor of the defense. So if I'm looking for an immediate impact guy uh, outside of Kate, it's probably Suggs. You know, he does need to get the shooting consistency down where when he's more streaky than pure and, and, and he's, you know, a, a couple great nights and a couple where he's absent from three, that is a little bit of a concern. But I would, I would lean towards him making the, the biggest immediate impact of that group. When you move beyond the top five, I guess there's two layers to this question. Do you think we see a lot of – one, is there that huge of a drop-off where everyone seems to say this is a five-player draft? And when people say that, by the way, because they said uh, this past draft class was a three-player draft – I think they're talking about who do you think are going to be megastars. So that's not necessarily an insult to say that. We need to phrase that better. Uh, and also, I still might take Tyrese Halliburton second overall when all of this is said and done. I'm still not over the Knicks not selecting him, by the way. I'm also not over the Suns not selecting him for some reason. Uh, anyway, is that drop-off, is that being overstated or is it accurate? And then because of that drop-off, do you think that that's sort of the – there's always the noise before the draft. I think we've, for the most part, learned to see through smoke screens. But is that sort of the area of the draft where you look up and be like, okay, well, then maybe this is where some movement could happen, looking at teams that might trade down? I think from probably 7 to 12, there's a, a decent chance of having some movement. You know, the, To me, the ledge that you get after 5 and the major drop-off there isn't a crazy talent drop it's more so the like Jonathan Kaminga would probably go first overall a year ago he goes over Anthony Edwards um, wow. that's where I think that five-person draft conversation really comes in uh, I I really like I have two guys at six and seven on my board who I really like and think are a half step better than anybody else and then it comes down to a lot of really unique decisions where this draft, more so than any in, in recent memory, has sophomores and juniors who have climbed their way into lottery discussions. I think we've thought about this as a young man's game in the, the top 14 or 15 picks and always being, yeah, he was a freshman last year. If we can get in on his developmental curve early, we develop him into who he is. And when he signs his next contract, he's only 22, 23 years old, and we reap the benefits of him in his athletic prime. That's going to be a really unique discourse in this draft class outside of the top six or seven is are you taking, you know, a name like a Zaire Williams, a Jalen Johnson, a Greg Brown from Texas, three guys who had really, really flawed freshman years declared for the draft, but have such high tantalizing upside. Or do you take a Jared Butler from Baylor, uh, you know, Corey Kispert from Gonzaga, these guys who were upperclassmen, Franz Wagner from, from Michigan, the guys who had multiple years in college and aren't necessarily the sexy, really high upside slam dunk if you hit on them type of picks, but are really solid players and pros that you can, can get a lot out of and will not make you look stupid if you draft them. So that's to me where the ledge and the discourse comes in, but I do have a, a pretty firm six and, and seven on my board right now. Scotty Barnes from Florida State and Usman Garuba from Real Madrid. Uh, I like that you took you answered my next question. Uh, can you give me the the lowdown on Scotty Barnes? Scotty Barnes is a, for lack of a better term, a six foot nine point guard. Uh, he's a a lead creator at Florida State, and to understand you know, Barnes and what he showed this past year, you have to have a little bit of an understanding of what Leonard Hamilton does at Florida state. 
they play 12 guys every single night and mm-hmm. rely on their depth. So if you look at Scotty Barnes' raw numbers, none of it's going to impress you. Uh, but because they switch everything on defense, they rely on length and athleticism. They were one of the worst shooting teams in college basketball this past year. And that lack of shooting ability really shrinks the floor for a six foot nine point guard a little bit. So Barnes assist numbers weren't really great. You know, as I've watched him more and I just finished the scouting report on him earlier this week, like there are flashes when you get him in space in transition, you're able to, you know, clear outside of the floor for him where he looks a little bit Giannis like just with his size and length, his burst, like, He's one of those guys who he just palms the ball and lays it up above the rim. And you're thinking to yourself, like, how do you stop this guy when he gets ahead of steam towards the basket? He's still got to learn how to play a decent amount. And he is not a very good shooter. He looks really, really stiff off the bounce. He's fairly inconsistent as a catch and shoot threat. So there's, I don't want to invite the Giannis comparison, even though I set myself up for that. Uh, I don't want to invite that because you know, Giannis is such a good rebounder and an impactful defender that early in his career, he more than made up for the shooting flaws and then worked himself into a shooter that propelled him to an, an MVP level. Uh, I don't know if I have the same faith in Barnes. Like he, he struggles to rebound a little bit outside his area. He's not as pure of a scorer and is a little bit more of a, a creator, but the, the upside is there to, to reach a, a really, really high level because he's, again, a, a lead guard skills with a 7-2 wingspan. He seems to be, in just mock drafts that I've read and perused, and I didn't give this much thought, he seemed to be consensus top seven. And I guess, as you already mentioned, that's probably a big part, like because he's a freshman. That's probably just what went into that decision. Well, not the only thing, obviously, but that probably ensures, helps ensure that he's just not slipping past number seven. I'd agree with that, yeah. And who was the other player you mentioned? I already forgot. Yeah, Osman Garuba at Real Madrid. Uh, the closest thing that we'll find to a Draymond Green defensively in the pre-draft process. You know, six foot eight, uh, seven two wingspan, but incredibly impactful defender. Every single game, you can probably cut up two to two and a half minutes of defensive highlights that he finds. He can switch. He can protect the rim. He's a really, really good shot blocker. It just makes winning plays and instinctual plays. He's got a long way to go on offense. He's flirted with the 30% mark from three on incredibly low volume. And he shows some ability to be a really good passer, whether it's out of the short roll in the middle third of the floor. He, he makes good decisions out of post-ups when they, they run them for him at Real Madrid. And again, he plays against professional competition. He's not doing this in the West Coast Conference against Santa Clara and Loyola. Like he's, He is dominating grown men and professionals. Um, just the weirdest thing athletically. You watch him defensively and how he switches and guards people in space and and just how he's able to time every single one of his jumps to meet guys at the rim. He looks like a sensational athlete. You look at him on offense, and he's so robotic and moves almost like the Tin Man where you just want to grease his <laughs> joints. Like it, it's, it's the strangest thing to me, and I can't really figure out what to do with it because – you know, if he just moved a little bit more naturally and you felt comfortable in saying that he could attack a poor closeout and make a decision as a true four, you would find ways to say he's going to be a really, really, really impactful player on both ends. But I don't know where his offensive fit and role is right now. He's a tiny bit undersized at the five, a tiny bit. It's probably his best role, but uh, I have enough belief in him making such a sensational defensive impact that I'll, uh, I'll stamp that one as saying he's he's going to stay in the top seven throughout this pre-draft process for me. Like last year, Devin Vassell was my guy on the defensive end. Garuba is that this year. Do you think the you mentioned the lack of size and then sort of just the ambiguous offensive skill set? Do you think that keeps him out of the lottery, or is he someone that you expect to go inside the lottery? I hope that NBA teams kind of smarten up and get him to a lottery guy because. He tends to be fairly polarizing in that regard. Like, there's some people that are doing mock drafts work and uh, and in the scouting process that think of him as a true top seven or top eight guy. There are others who have him in the twenty to thirty five range and just completely don't see how his offensive role is going to translate at all and are scared of taking him. Like, you know, there's a little bit of, I think, 
people are too afraid of drafting somebody that doesn't have a reliable jump shot right now. Um, you know, especially if you're a big man, you can find other ways to impact the game where you don't need a jump shot. And what I've seen from him in every other facet of his game is that it's good enough that he's going to, he's going to figure it out. I think I might know the answer to this question, but is there a, or do you have a sleeping giant in this draft class where it's, doesn't have to be necessarily the same range, but outside the top 10 where it's like, you know, we're going to look back like a Tyrese Halliburton. I'm saying, you know, I would have taken him second and probably no lower than third. Is, is there that type of player with that potential here to you in this draft class? Yeah, I, I feel like you're teeing me up for my guy, Jared Butler. Um, He's officially you know. our guy because mock drafts have started <laughs> sending him to the Knicks. So speaking into existence. There we go. Uh, Butler was a guy last year who flirted with coming into the NBA draft. And I had him in the 20 to 25 range. I liked his versatility as kind of that combo guard that can score a little bit off the balance, was an underrated pick and roll playmaker and a really good shooter, especially off movement. Like I thought a team like Philadelphia who could play him where he would guard ones and then have a front court creator next to him, like Ben Simmons was really going to be able to get the most out of him. He came back to Baylor this year and not just proved that he's a winner by cutting down the nets in the national championship game and, and shooting over 40% from three to become a first team all American but he greatly improved his isolation shot making where now he is hitting one-on-one step backs. He is drilling shots whenever anybody gives him a a semblance of, of space from deep. And that tantalizing shot making ability has vaulted him up to kind of borderline top 10 on my board. I still think there are enough teams out there who have unique rosters where, you know, their, their primary creator or handler is a front court guy. You know, Boston has Tatum and, and Brown now, uh, you know, Denver with with Jokic. Like there's so many situations where you can now get away with playing somebody that's not a pure creator at the point and feel like you're maximizing who you are as a team. Butler fits any number of those teams so well that I, I just have a really difficult time in saying he's not going to be successful no matter where he ends up. Because if you play with the ball in his hands, he's now proving he can drill shots in isolations. What is kind of is that what i guess is have people not caught on to the fact then that he's hitting those types of shots because he's still in a lot of the mocks or big boards definitively behind uh the other baylor guard mitchell is there like should there be that much separation between them i am always hesitant to to put mitchell that high because i'm not sure what his offensive role is uh you know he's probably the best on-ball defender for a guard in this draft and maybe the best I've seen in college basketball in the last few years. Like he has Patrick Beverly written all over him. He's a little bit more elite when it comes to his change of speeds offensively than Patrick Beverly was. But I don't think of Mitchell as a great creator for himself or for others. His advantage at at Baylor was getting to the rim against guys. I don't know if that's going to be the same advantage that he has in the NBA. Uh, so for me, it's pretty clear cut that Butler's ahead of him. I think, you know, we talked about Malachi Richardson a little bit earlier. Like Mitchell is the one who popped a little bit more through the NCAA tournament because you turn it on and you watch him play and he's just eating other guards alive, like how good he is defensively. And now we're getting a little carried away and saying he should be top 10. He should be lottery, all these things. Like at the end of the day, his offensive role is kind of as a glorified Patrick Beverly. That's not to say that that type of player can't be taken in the lottery, but that's also almost a best case scenario in my book. So um, I, I think Butler is head and shoulders ahead of Mitchell right now. Where does he fall on your current big board? I have him at 24. And you have Butler at, you say 10? Is that where? Butler's at 11 right now. Yeah, 11. Just outside about 10. Is there that type of fine margin between the guys, let's say outside the top seven, uh, where Butler could act. I think a lot of spots I've seen him at number 21. Uh, I've seen him like before that is, is it possible for him to go inside the lottery or is there not that type of swing potential in this draft class outside the top seven? Well, he's the, he's the guy that I talked about along with Corey Kispert, you know, Butler played three years at Baylor. Uh, Typically you see guys who are multi-year college players steered clear of in the lottery, at least if there's enough, tantalizing talent out there that teams want to draft younger 
Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's the case this year, just because there are so many question marks around those guys where the the top tier freshmen, at least coming out of high school, did not perform up to standards kind of across the board. Uh, Zaire Williams at Stanford had a pretty disappointing season. Jalen Johnson was really poor at Duke and didn't even end up finishing the season out there. Uh, Greg Brown at Texas was set historic lows for assists per 40 minutes. Like there are glaring red flags with a lot of these guys where you would think a guy like Butler or Corey Kispert at Gonzaga might be able to sneak their way into the the lottery. Um, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think Kispert does, but I think Butler does. Is there uh, sort of wrapping up the draft talk, which prospects, in your estimation, is not receiving enough attention right now that you're highest on. Those are, and I'm, I'll, for, I'll forewarn you and everybody, these are probably going to then all of a sudden, I'm just going to monopolize them as, cannibalize them as my guys after this podcast. Cause that's what happened last year. You started talking about Devin Vassell, and I was just like, that's him. That's the guy I'm going to become obsessed with before the draft. Yeah. Uh, I'll throw out a couple names and just glance over each of them really, really quickly. First, Jeremiah Robinson Earl from Villanova. Six foot nine with really good defensive ability. I think of a career Jared Dudley type of guy. Where you know, if you if someone came to you today when you're drafting a team and said you could have a a guy that has the career of a Jared Dudley, where would you take him? I mean, what would your thought be to that, Dan? Where, like, what team or what spot in the draft? What what spot in the draft would you take a guy when you said I know his career is going to be that of a Jared Dudley? Ooh. Like right outside, maybe just inside the lottery feels like a good spot. And I have Jeremiah Robinson Earl at the 15th spot because I believe he's too solid in so many ways. Defensively, he is a a capable shooter, pretty good passer, really fundamentally sound. I've always said I love Villanova guys and and think that it's role player university. So if (laughs) if that's you know, if that's what you're you're looking for outside the lottery and you get to the point where you say, we just need a good role player. We don't want to strike out on this pick. I think Robinson Earl has to have first round discussions. Uh, another name I'm I'm really high on is Ron Harper Jr. from Rutgers. He's all over pre-draft boards. I think I'm probably the highest on him. I have him having a first round grade, but he's like a, a six foot six athlete who can probably guard two through four at the next level. He doesn't play like his dad. He's a human bowling ball. Like he's physically so strong that he can just barrel and run guys over. Speaking of human bowling balls, my guy is Raekwon Gray, another Florida State prospect. I don't know if you've seen him, but imagine if you uh, gave Zion Williamson a flat tire. Like that's Raekwon Gray a little bit. He is a really strong, thick six foot eight, uh, but he has no burst to him where just the the type of of body and frame and physicality that he plays with is really, really hard to stop, but he doesn't have the athletic upside or pop. I I think that he's going to be someone that sneaks up on people through this pre-draft process. And then the last one that I'll leave you with here is Trey Murphy from Virginia. Uh, Talk about role player you with Villanova. I mean, when was the last time a Virginia player came into the NBA and disappointed? You know, Malcolm Brogdon, Joe Harris, all these guys outperform their expectations. And Murphy, because he plays in a slowdown offense, doesn't have the pure numbers that pop. But he can be an elite shooter at the next level. He's six foot nine, really, really good defender. Uh, you know, those solid three and D type prospects are never going to go out of style. And uh, so many NBA teams are hurting for quality impact wings right now. Yeah. I would feel comfortable in saying that Murphy is is going to be a first round guy and, and sneak into those conversations. I am very interested. Those are all names that I'm going to now keep an eye on and research a little bit more, but I am very interested just to see the the lottery for this draft. There feels like there's just more stakes there when you're looking at the Golden State versus Minnesota pick commitments. Even with Golden State, where does their pick land? You have Houston. Does it keep its own pick? Can OKC swap it? Where does OKC land? Are they going to have, you know, they could feasibly wind up with two top five picks technically. So there's going to, and then there's just, like I mentioned before, it seems like there are teams on more immediate timelines that could find themselves in that situation. Um, the Pelicans it's still at their team that I can't figure out. Like, where do they land? What can they do? So I am going to be fascinated to see what the draft order ends up being, which is probably the next time we're going to bother you, bother the hell out of you to try and get um, some insight onto prospects and where they might best fit. 
you did say that you would help me equivocate on the Boston Celtics. Are you ready to, to shift gears to, to what I guess has been, do we call them one of the most disappointing teams or are they just one of the more confusing teams or are they just both? They're definitely both. Uh, I don't think it's uh, a stretch to say that they are a major disappointment right now. And as a, a lifelong Celtics fan, somebody who covers the team at Celtics blog, it's been frustrating to try to figure out and, and diagnose, you know, what, what is wrong, what needs to change and, and why the team's not living up to expectations. Yeah. There's to their credit, they use part of most of the Gordon Hayward trade exception to get Evan Fournier. I thought that was a home run deal for them, even though he wasn't obviously isn't off to the smoothest start in Boston, the Tice tax dump is still sort of weird, but even after making that move, which is very clearly the Fournier move was win now, but then you go do something like Tice where it's like, well, now you're just, you're trying to worry about a repeater tax clock that hasn't even started yet for you. I mentioned this to you in our direct message. They feel like a team that hasn't committed to a direction. When you look at them on paper, I think they have a ton of rookie contracts. Let's not even count Jason Tatum's. They have like six or seven rookie contracts that aren't Jason Tatum. And how you, I don't know that you can be a contender like that when you need a Peyton Pritchard to play these huge minutes. And I know that, you know, you had Marcus smart injuries earlier, but even just like moving a rotation big like Tice to where now you're more dependent on Robert Williams, who doesn't match up that great with the Burlier fives, even though he's really good. And then not, you need Tristan Thompson to just play better overall. And I think he's working his way back from COVID too. I just, I don't know. It's they have time because Tatum and Brown are so young, but I don't feel like this half baked direction suits how good Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, not are this season, but how good we knew they were leading into this season already. I totally agree with that. Uh, you know, the, the point I keep coming back to with the the really young roster of role players that they have is twofold. One, it's really, really challenging as a young guy to figure out what your role is in the league for the first time because everybody is used to being the best on their college team, the elite high school guy. When you go from, you know, like Aaron Neesmith at Vanderbilt, having every single set play run for you every single game that you play to being a, a DNP coach's decision and having to figure out how to get Tatum and Brown shots and use your shooting just to space the floor around them. That's an adjustment. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. It, it takes time to learn how to be a role player in the NBA and the lack of veterans who are great leaders who have gone through that process and can show the ropes to those young guys in the locker room is what's becoming evident. Because as Brad Stevens shuffles things around based on injuries, based on matchups, based on wanting to give certain guys different chances, there isn't that one veteran presence in the locker room to be able to pull them aside and say, hey, I went through this. Here's how you need to handle it. Yeah, so that that absence is is pretty clear to me from watching the team. The other thing is Tatum and Brown have their hands full in figuring out how to be the guy, finally. And their role can't be to look out for the younger guys and try to, you know, wear that hat, that advising mentorship, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, veteran leader. They need to handle the you know, the challenges that come with being the top of the scouting report every single night to, to deal with Campbell Walker being in and out of the lineup, to deal with someone coming to you and saying, hey, we're running an offense that's built around you getting touches. Can you always take the right shot and always know when to create for somebody else? Because we don't have, outside of you two and Kemba, a ton of self-creators. That's a, that's a hard role to, to, to learn how to fill. And the difficulty in all of this is that they haven't done either of these with much spirit in life. Like they don't play with a ton of energy to, to make up for what they don't know or what they're trying to feel their way through. And when you're not polished and when you're trying to figure things out on the fly, energy and effort is always going to be the tiebreaker. It's why they've struggled a little bit defensively. It's why they've been really inconsistent and dropped games early in the season to Detroit and Washington when they probably shouldn't have. Like those are things where when, when you have pros in the locker room or you have a team that knows who its identity is and knows what to expect every time you walk out on the court, those things write themselves and they just don't have it right now. Yeah, there's they feel like a team that not the most likely team, but where a lead just really isn't safe 
where, or if they have a six to eight point lead, it's not something that they're actually going to build off. And I am wondering overall, how much of their struggles can be traced back to Kemba in the sense that he missed his time with the knee injury. And then when you look at, he's still been in and out of the lineup, as you already mentioned, when you look at Kemba Walker's like games by game, they are all over the place, his performances. And so there's a level I don't want to say of comfort, but it's if Kemba Walker gets right or is more consistent leading into the playoffs, the Celtics might have the the best wild card potential where, oh, they're a lot better than we thought during the regular season. But is that even enough? And are they at the point where they can even, I don't want to say count on it, but but hope that that happens? You know, Tristan Thompson said something really interesting the other night where back on his times in Cleveland, they were less concerned about winning every single game in the regular season and more about just getting to the point where they would all be healthy for the playoffs and playing at their peak. It does seem like that's a little bit of what Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens are trying to construct here in Boston by still you know, limiting Kemba on back-to-backs and, and making sure that they give young guys certain opportunities so they would round out their rotation and not overextend everybody else. But and look at the top of the East right now. Brooklyn, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee are such a clear-cut top three that if, if you want to make one of those surprise runs in the postseason, you almost have to get up to the four or five seed. Like That's the clearest path to getting out of the first round right now. And without Daniel Tice, you know, Philadelphia is going to be a really tough matchup for Boston because Embiid is, like you said, going to be that burly post that eats Robert Williams alive a little bit. Brooklyn and, and Milwaukee have the ability to spread Philadelphia out in a way that, that Boston really doesn't right now. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be as much about the draw for Boston as, as anything else. And the best way to avoid, you know, needing it to be matchup dependent is to take matters into your own hands and win enough games to the point where you're a high enough seed that you're not going to play the Sixers in the first round or, you know, that you're avoiding that matchup as best you can. So, I think that there's a, a little bit of that two sides of the coin of you, do you want to play your best ball in the postseason and save yourself until then? Absolutely. Uh, but there needs to be a little bit more urgency to continue to rise up because they're closer to missing the playoffs right right now than they are of of getting up to the four seed. Yeah, I know the, the Eastern Conference standings are just separated by just a mere matter of a couple games, but it's just not looking at it like, oh, we didn't expect Boston to be – um, neck and neck with the Knicks this year, where they're the seven seed and the Knicks or the the eight seed. That's playing territory, as you already mentioned. Is there, you know, one of the things that I come back to on their offense, which I don't think it's not been the side of the floor where they've struggled the most, but do you believe that they have the the skill sets when you're looking at Tatum and Brown necessary to put consistent pressure on the rim to draw more free throws? They did a good job of that against the Knicks, a team that kind of invites attempt that doesn't invite, but they just allow more attempts at the rim than a lot of other teams but is that I feel like this is a reoccurring theme with the Celtics where it was a reoccurring theme with Jason Tatum for so long he's gotten a little bit better at it uh is it the playmaking that they're shouldering does that take them out of that mindset a little bit potentially I'm just very curious to whether you think that's something that can be remedied from within and so unless you don't even think that it's a problem you know I don't I don't know if it's a problem for Brown uh I think his issue now is he's turned himself into such a good shooter and been so consistent with that that sometimes that's a, a better decision for him than trying to drive and, and continue to have the floor collapse on him as he tries to attempt something at the rim. Tatum, I've always been a little worried by his lack of attempts at the rim. I think that that's as indicative of what he needs to do to take that next step as it is his playmaking. You know, I, to me, he's just, he's missing that pure aggression. And one thing Daniel Tice did really, really well was that screen and seal move where he would roll to the front of the basket and then just completely bury some rim protector and try to hold him off on his back so Tatum could have a clear path at a layup. And uh, you know, I don't know if Thompson's as good at that. Robert Williams is, uh, let's just say subtlety is not his strong suit. So I don't know if he's going to be the type of guy that, that fills that role. Like I, I really do worry about Tatum being so heavily jump shot dependent uh, that it makes it less likely, you know, help defenses are going to try to scramble to the rim, therefore limiting his playmaking upside. So the, the biggest way to untap more in Tatum is to get him to the rim more, which then forces defenses to collapse and probably opens up a few more passing lanes for him. Who is the most important non-Marcus Smart 
Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker player on this team. And that's where it feels like reliability. And I don't think Kemba has not been reliable, but it feels like after those four guys, you legitimately know if we're looking at it through the lens of the rest of the season, a postseason series, who are you looking at saying, you know, we can bank on his performance. I guess Evan Fournier is now the reflexive answer, but then even moving beyond him, like who becomes most important to this team? I think it has to be Robert Williams. I mean, you don't trade away your starting center uh, without believing in what he's going to be able to give you in the postseason. And that's where I think the one thing the Celtics lack is a small ball five. Like they can't really commit to spreading other teams out by playing somebody at that spot anymore. Grant Williams, maybe, but he's just been so inconsistent in his own world right now uh, that it's hard to bank on him in that spot. Like they have stretch fives like Lou Cornette and Mo Wagner, but I wouldn't really want to see either of them playing heavy minutes in a postseason series right now. Um, you know, they're committed to playing with Williams or Thompson as that rim protecting shot blocking screen and roll or catch and finish type of five, which means that they have to be really, really good in that role, or at least good enough to the point where, you know, when they face a Brooklyn that can go a little bit smaller and try to spread them out, that Boston doesn't feel exposed. Do you look at this and I'm not trying to trade away their young players, but there there's obviously Robert Williams, but do you look at, you know, Naismith, Romeo Langford has a three game sample size under his belt this season. Now we should all throw confetti for that. You have Peyton Pritchard. You mentioned, I really like Grant Williams, but as you said, he's been super inconsistent this season. Do they have anyone on this team that can either pop for them semi immediately, or who could be a centerpiece might be too strong of a word, but an actual trade magnet for them because they are, they have to do something over the off season. This is, they're not looking at this team. Even if Kemba goes off, they're not going to make a run to the NBA finals. And it feels like they're, it's not even just a player short. It feels like 1.5 players short at this point. And so you either need someone from within to really go boom either for you on the court or as a trade asset. Yeah. I'm going to give you the cop out answer, Dan. Like at this point, I don't care who it is. It just needs to be like one or two guys that establish themselves as rotation pieces. So we can get rid of everybody else because you, you can't have, eight guys on rookie contracts trying to figure out who they are on a roster that tries to compete. There's just no room for that. So, you know, I'd love for it to be Neesmith because he's, you know, the role that he fills is probably the most important one next to Tatum and Brown, which is just straight up catch and shoot success. Um, and I'd like for it to be Grant Williams, because as we mentioned, having that small ball five, which I still think is his best kind of role and position is really important, but then you have to make the decisions. You've got to get rid of the Carson Edwards. You've got to get rid of the semi Ogilvy's. Like those guys can't be getting playoff minutes on a team. Um, you know, I, I think Romeo Langford has upside to him, but if you're talking about trade targets, that would be the one for me. Where if you develop him and he shows that he can do something this year, kind of cash out a little bit and get a little bit more of a shooter or a defined three and D type of role, because that's ultimately what you need at the wing spot next to Tatum and Brown. Do they have, does he have the room to do that? I know his, you know, his defense is kind of tantalizing, but is he, is he that complimentary offensive player? That seems more like it could be a Pritchard or, or Neesmith. Yeah. I keep going back to how he was in high school. He was a prolific scorer in high school. Um, you know, everyone is waiting for it to click to the point where he does that in the NBA, he struggled at Indiana. He had some wrist issues, I believe, and, and didn't shoot the ball very well from deep. The Celtics drafted him 13th, thinking that that would fix itself. He hasn't proven to be an incredibly reliable shooter yet, uh, but he's certainly also not the generational type of scorer that people thought he was when he was in high school. Spins, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. I have no strong opinions about the Celtics. I feel like they're in trouble, but it's also, it's tough to, they have two of the most tantalizing building blocks in the NBA. And just, you can imagine them making a really strong push. I, don't, I wouldn't consider them a title contender, but if they just get more from Kemba Walker, that's still a, in theory, an actual big three. And things can, you know, round out from there. But they're, they're so, even the, their most recent Knicks game, they won, but it was just like, that had, I know the cliche is basketball is a game of runs, but that was like a, a game of runs and dry spells. And that feels like the ebb and flow of so many of their games this season. Yeah, look, they're still the fourth most talented team in the East, probably right behind the, the big three there of Brooklyn, Philly, and Milwaukee. 
and that's got to count for something. You know, you can't count Boston behind Miami. I think they're probably a, a little bit more top heavy talented. I think I'd rather have Tatum and Brown than I would uh, Butler and Oladipo. Um, but it, it's very close with those two teams. Very Miami at least has such a defined identity and they shoot the ball so well that I, I would pick Miami in a postseason series. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that Boston is just as, if not more, individually talented. Yes, uh, Miami could carve out floor spacing in a flash mob. Uh, they are spectacular <laughs> doing that. Spins, this was so great. Thank you so much for coming on. You know I will be bothering you again down the line, but for now, can you tell our listeners where they can find your work, follow your work? Oh, Dan, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Follow me at Spinella14. That's S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A-1-4 writing a lot of NBA draft scouting reports and doing uh, YouTube scouts and tons of in-depth breakdowns either on our YouTube channel. You can find me at Adam Spinella or on the box and one, which is the box and And for more half depressed Celtics takes, you can follow me and, and my colleagues over at Celtics blog right now. Definitely follow. I mean, follows Adam directly as he already mentioned at Spinella 14, uh, but definitely follow box and one. He writes so much great stuff. I'm watching his YouTube scouting reports are a godsend for me, especially when I'm doing a draft crash course or just trying to feign some knowledge before a podcast with Spins himself. Thank you so much, Spins. I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, Dan.